On July 28, 1990, a story appeared in the Putnam Trader in Cross River, New York, under the headline, Mayopax Perlman Runs Off to Delaware. It opened with, after spending two years as a member of the Mayopax High Varsity Cross Country Team and three on the track team, Jeff Perlman will be taking his running talents to the University of Delaware. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the author of nine books and a New York Times bestseller. And 30 years ago, I wrote that story about Jeff Perlman. Welcome to Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every week. Today's episode features Brittany Giroli, the Major League Baseball writer for The Athletic, who has some absolutely crazy stories on her life on the beat, her past MLB.com experiences, on being hit on by a player, and powerlifting through Ireland. This is episode number 133. Let's sling some Yang. All right, Brittany, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. I'm pulling you away. From, from my experience, a whole lot of standing in a hallway, which would be the winter meetings, which I used to cover when I was at SI, the baseball winter meetings. Um, did you get a lot of standing done? Uh, yes. I, I was hoping you were going to say rumors when I was going to counter with, no, it's just standing. Uh, yes. I got a lot of standing. I got a lot of steps. I feel like all you do is aimlessly wander the halls. Um, as you know, Jeff, the... The days of trying to get something in the lobby are, are pretty much over. It's just a whole bunch of old reporters standing around talking to each other. I remember I went when I was a young writer to SI, and it was because you were supposed to be there. And I'd be there with another young reporter, Steve Canella, and Tom Verducci was kind of the, you know, he knew what he was doing. And I felt, I always felt like he knew what he was doing. He was getting stuff, and I was an imposter just waiting for dinner. <laughs> That's what I feel like too. Um, yeah, I'm here because. One, you have to be. Um, two, Mike Rizzo, the Nationals GM, does talk every day. We do get Davey Martinez. Um, it's important to, you know, see people that you only see once a year. Um, I've spent some time in other organizations, you know, Baltimore, Tampa Bay, New York, and saying hi to those people, continuing those relationships uh, is important. But yeah, this is, is a little antiquated in my opinion. Once the uh, text messages became popular. Uh, it was no longer a, Hey, you need to come and sit face to face so we can meet. It really, in my opinion, it, it is just a dated thing. The winter meetings as a whole, but you know, deals got done this week. So it's a good celebration for baseball. Usually though, the last few years, it's been a whole lot of nothing and everyone wondering why do we have these in early December? The big news, obviously in the winter meetings was a Garrett Cole signing. When you're covering winter meetings and something like that happens, are you supposed to react in a certain way? I mean, you don't cover the Yankees, but are you, are you supposed to quote unquote do something or do you just nod your head and go, Oh, that's interesting and tweet it out. <laughs> the latter. Um, what's <laughs> nice too about being at the athletic is there's a lot of freedom, right? No one is ever saying, um, even when the nationals made a move here at Steven Strasburg on Monday, no one was like, Hey, we need you to hurry up and get a story in, which my previous uh, experience as a beat writer, that was kind of the case. Now you had to hurry up and confirm it and then throw something up, kind of like word vomit for, you know, three or four paragraphs to hold a place while you got more. But we really don't have to do that. I saw it, thought it was interesting. I think if Steven Strasburg hadn't signed, you would have been like, whoa, this guy's going to get paid. But he had already signed. Um, so it didn't really have any impact on the Nationals. They weren't in on Garrett Cole. So right. to me, it was just kind of cool to watch, you know, people kind of all of a sudden run around and be on their phones nonstop and, um, the, the chaos that kind of erupted in the lobby when something like that goes down. It's really interesting. You spent almost a decade 
uh, at MLB.com as an Orioles reporter. Now you're at The Athletic. Have you had to mentally adjust uh, or physically adjust or whatever, sort of the way you think about the job itself? Yeah. So what's awesome, and I'm sure you can probably relate to this, Jeff, just you know, being in baseball for a bit, is I don't need to be in those scrums at all. In fact, I shouldn't be. If there is 10 people around a player, uh, The Athletic is a subscription site, and we really have no use for that. You need to dig. You need to get better stuff. Um, you need to get guys one-on-one. You need to be thinking beyond, oh, this guy's hamstring is strained and it's spring training. So a lot of that is kind of undoing what what you trained yourself to do for so long. You know, check on so-and-so's hamstring today. Oh, he's still day-to-day. Listen to Davey Martinez. Tweet out some minutiae. Write the game story. Go down, get the quotes, plug them into the game story. None of that is part of my day anymore. There are days I go to the stadium, I collect stuff. I don't write a thing. I may listen post game. I may not listen post game because it's kind of the same cliches. Um, after every game, it seems like every year it gets a little bit worse in terms of quotes. So it is different. Um, I do a lot more work from home. I do a lot more using my brain. Um, it's kind of what I tell people because you're constantly searching for a different angle, a different way to look at things. When everyone's talking about one thing, you need to be like, all right, what else am I going to talk about that's going to make people say, I want to open this app. I want to subscribe to this site. Brittany's giving us something we can't get anywhere else. And that's real tough in DC when you have the Washington Post, which has a huge digital presence. You know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, probably one and two right there. So with the athletic and a lot of markets, they came in and cleaned house. But in DC, uh, they had a lot a really, really hard time filling this job before me because nobody wants to go up against the Washington Post. So to me, that makes it even tougher. I can't just throw stuff up and hope it hope it sticks online. I've really got to find something different and unique and special. All right. Can you give me an example of a story that you have sort of covered that were you still at MLB.com or were you at the Post, it would be an automatic, all right, this is how we're going to do it. And you've approached it differently. Aaron Barrett was kind of a, a, a great success story for uh, the Nationals. He essentially was rehabbing from Tommy John surgery and then snapped his arm in half while he was on a, in a rehab game. You know, terrific story, made it back to spring training this spring, was a late September call-up. Everyone writes the story. He comes in, he's promoted, he's talking about how excited he is. Um, if I was with MLB.com, I would have written that story. If I was with The Post, I would have written that story. It's, it's a great story. Here's what Aaron Barrett had to say. I knew I couldn't do that, but it was a great story. I didn't want to leave it alone. So I contacted his wife, Kendall, sat with her for a game, told the story of this three years of grueling rehab through that lens instead. Um, and she was terrific. We spent a couple hours together and I was able to tell that story, but tell it in, in such a different facet, you know, from the spouse, from the person who, you know, saw him rehabbing for eight hours a day and, and, you know, talked about how he called her on the phone in tears to tell her that he was promoted. And the last time he was in tears, it was because, you know, he basically had snapped his arm in half and he was wailing on his way to the ambulance. So um, that's kind of an example of something where, you know, I could have been quote unquote lazy, gotten in the scrum, gotten a few quotes, thrown it up and it would have been fine, but I really can't do that at the athletics. So I really had to use my brain and be like, how can I tell this great story um, and not do it in a way that was kind of spoon fed to me? I just want to say, I have the story in front of me. The headline is Aaron Barrett snapped his arm in half. Then he shocked the baseball world. And your lead was he was crying. His heart lurched. The last time Kendall Barrett's husband, Aaron, called her crying, it had been that fateful day in the summer of 2016. She stops, eyes welling with tears, before her mind darts back to that dark place again. No, she corrects herself. 
studying the snippets etched in her brain. It hadn't been Aaron on the phone that day. It had been longtime pitching coordinator and current Nats pitching coach Paul Menhart on the receiving end. Where are you? said a frantic Menhart who had reached Kendall at the gym. We need you to get to the field immediately. That's really good. Wait, you do something with your writing? That is really interesting. Um, so when I was coming up at the Tennessean, the thing that was like pushed into our heads over and over again that I just freaking ignored repeatedly was this idea of a nut graph. And you need to have a nut graph in the first three se- uh, paragraphs to tell the reader what the story is about. And you are, of anyone I've had on this podcast, the biggest ignorer of the Nutcraft. And I freaking love it. Like your leads travel. <laughs> they go a while. They really do. Like you are consistently a long lead person where, and there's no paragraph saying, in case you're wondering, this is why you're reading the story. And it's really important you read the story. And I freaking love it. I don't know if anyone's ever said that to you before, but you are the biggest denier of the Nutcraft I've ever seen. <laughs> no. And I, I take that as a compliment. Uh, you should. Because, because at MLB.com, it was kind of that, Hey, got to get the score in the first three paragraphs, like what they did. And to me, it's just mind numbing. One, the reader's not dumb. Two, it's it's 2019. People know the score. They're not coming to read your articles, even if I was writing game stories, which I'm not anymore. They're not coming to read to see if the Nationals won. They already know the score of the game. Like I I I don't like that perception of treating readers like idiots. And also, well, now with the athletic, you kind of are you get that long form. Um, you're able to kind of draw readers in. And to me, it's more fun. You know, why not? Writing is an art, and it shouldn't be. As you know, you read so much stuff that's like, okay, here's the lead. Here's a quote. Here's another paragraph. Here's the quote. I always hated that. Um, you know, you really need to make someone stop, grab their attention and continue to keep their attention rather than them reading the first three paragraphs and then clicking on another story. I also want to say just for the record, and this is a, a complete non sequitur, I was looking at your LinkedIn page and I love with everything in my heart that you have. Under freelance writer, March 2009 to January 2010, served as Mets beat reporter for week-long stint that include Gary Sheffield's 500th home run, <laughs> City Field's inaugural game, and this is my favorite, and Mike Pelfrey's tendonitis news. I could, <laughs> I could see some editor, I could see some editor going like, you know what, we got to give this, we got to give this Brittany a shot. I mean, to carry the big, to cover the big Pelfrey news, I think, I think she's worth getting in here. I don't even remember writing that, but that's awesome. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, that was. What it. was it like? I need to know what was it like that week covering the Mike Pelfrey tendonitis. Oh, clearly uh, a huge, galvanizing, game-changing week for me with that. Um, <laughs> I remember Gary Sheffield was a jerk. That's about all I remember of that week. Um, <laughs> Wait, was he really? <laughs> yeah, he wasn't. I don't know if he was in a bad mood or what, but I remember being like, "Man, this guy's." Not super nice, not super friendly, not super excited. And it was like happy stuff, right? He was hitting home runs. Um, so it was weird. You wrote a story in relation to someone being a jerk. You wrote a, I thought this was great. And, uh, cause I asked you for clips you like and you sent this to me. It was from August this year. It was how could the Astros have handled the Verlander controversy? There was a better way. And this is what I mean. This is a freaking funky split fingered curveball of a story. Everything about the story, the way you approached it was funky and different and weird and quirky. And I freaking loved it. It was, um, he wrote, there was a right way and a wrong way, which became the Astros' way to handle the incident between Houston starter Justin Verlander and a Detroit Free Press reporter Wednesday night. How can I be so sure? Because something similar once happened to me. In 2011, I was a second-year reporter for MLB.com covering the Baltimore Orioles. I was a 25-year-old with a dream job. I was having a blast, or as much of a blast as you can have covering a team that went through three managers the year prior in a 96-loss season. Losing sucks all the atmosphere out of a clubhouse. Guys are angry, quick to turn on each other, or anyone with a tape recorder. It can make your job a lot harder. 
Still, I wasn't aware of any particular issues until I was pulled aside one day in the spring of 2011 and told I wouldn't be welcome in the post-game scrum. The Orioles' starting pitcher that day, let's call him Pete, had told the club in no uncertain terms that he wouldn't speak with the media if I was present. In this case, it wasn't something I'd written, but a class of personalities. And you sort of tell the story of the Orioles actually handling it well, as opposed to the Astros. And and I wonder, like, the weirdness or the uniqueness of The Athletic. Do you say, hey, I had an experience like this. Can I write a first-person piece about, like, how does this story even come to be? I had heard about what was going on. I don't remember what city we were in. I think, oh, we were in Pittsburgh uh, with the Nationals. And I said to Emma Spann, who's our uh, MLB editor, I said, hey, listen, I'm sure you guys are doing stuff with this Verlander stuff, but um, it, I don't know if it's a common thing or what, but it, it's happened to me. Um, she's like, oh, really? I said, yeah, I mean, I don't mind writing about it uh, if you guys want. She said, yeah, sure. And that's kind of how it came about with those stories, Jeff. Like, you're not sure. Are people going to care? Are they not going to care? Um, we're like, whatever. We'll just we'll just put it up there. And it got a, a huge response. People were incensed. They wanted to know who that pitcher was. I heard from a lot of MLB managers, um, including, you know, Gabe Kapler sent me this lengthy text about how he read it and how much he learned about interacting with you know, players and how to make sure this stuff doesn't happen again. And it's definitely a piece you can only do at the athletic. Certainly MLB.com would have no use for something like that. Um, I had never written about it before. I had never talked about it before is as you know, clubhouses are weird, strange places. Once you're singled out, you really don't want to call attention to that. You just want to forget it ever happened. A few things about this one. Number one, why did you not name him? I felt like naming him would just kind of be calling him out all these years later. Uh, we never had a good relationship. He's out of baseball. He's been out of baseball for, for a while, actually. He, um, as ironic as it sounds, he never really lived up to his potential. So, uh, he was only in baseball, I think a few years after that. And I just felt like it would become the story instead of the fact that this was handled in a good way and it, the Verlander situation with the free press reporter could have been handled in a better way. I didn't want to make it about me. Um, I just wanted to use my experience to tell the story of how Houston just royally botched this. There you are. You're 25 years old. What is it to have a team come up to you and say, uh, this guy won't talk to the press if you're there? It's kind of like a, a gut punch. I mean, it's terrifying. First off, I was 25. I had maybe a year under my belt uh, on the beat. I'm MLB.com. So I'm not an independent journalist. Like I work for the team. I'm not supposed to be pissing off, you know, team officials or players or anyone. You know, there were certainly times where if I wrote something that was a little too negative, they'd take it down or change it or the team would complain. So, uh, you know, the, the notion of the fact that I could write what I want or do what I want it was certainly not true when I was at MLB.com. So I think, you know, the first thing is I'm going to get in trouble by my bosses. You know, I'm, I'm supposed to be kind of that friendly fire, like the, the friendly journalist in there. And then secondly, you're, you're kind of wondering, all right, how is this going to work? Are my colleagues going to turn on me? Like, I mean, there's, there's kind of this weird situation now where, you know, he's not going to talk if I'm in the scrum. I, I wasn't sure like what I did wrong. I wasn't sure if I'd written something. It's a terrible feeling to have. And especially being young, being female, trying to make a name for yourself, everything that you do gets so scrutinized, um, you know, and it's gotten better in the, the 12 years or so that I've been in the business. But, you know, certainly back then it was worse than it is now. And you're starting to run through all these scenarios of, can I, could I lose my job? Am I going to get a bad reputation? You know, what, what's going to happen to me? And it's all because this player decided that he didn't want to speak with me. Um, he was going to be difficult. I don't think guys realize what we do. I think every year the respect for what the media does 
goes away a little bit more. The wall continues to build between us versus them. Um, and guys don't realize the ripple effect of what something as simple as I'm not talking if Brittany's there can really do. There are certainly more confrontations, physical confrontations between players and reporters two, three decades ago than you see now. But you feel like there's a hostility that is built in your time covering sports? Yeah, I think it gets worse and worse. And my first year was 08. And, you know, nowadays, back in 08, then you could go up to a guy, talk to a guy. You didn't need the PR staff. And it seems like now every PR staff wants to stand behind you. They want to, you know, they want to set up that one-on-one for you instead of you texting guy, a guy to meet for coffee to sit down. Uh, you know, they want their hands in everything. They want to make sure these players are quote unquote protected, which isn't necessarily their job. You know, their job is to promote the team. So, um, you know, and I think a lot of that comes from above them. You know, I think every year it gets a little worse in ter- terms of access. We used to be able to get players after BP that went away. You know, we have like this. A lot of times it's a dead time of like an hour in the clubhouse where you're standing around. And if it was just a fact of the players being in there for 10 minutes, we'd go away. You know, I think players don't realize uh, when I don't like standing in there. I hate standing in that clubhouse. If I don't have anything to do, I'm somewhere else. But I do think every year there's there's less respect the way the social media works. You know, these guys are constantly uh, being berated with, you know, what's what we're tweeting, you know, wives and friends and. Family members are telling them what we're writing, um, and it's never the positive stuff that gets relayed. So I do think that the media, for better or worse, every year it seems to get a little bit harder to do your job. And they kind of lump you into one, right? They have a problem with one reporter. It becomes they have a problem with the media in general. Um, and I don't know how you fix that. What is the difference between a good team publicist or media relations manager and a bad one? I think a good one understands that we have a job and that their job is to facilitate us getting what we need to promote the team, whether that's good or bad or whatever, that, you know, if a guy makes a scene, the sooner he talks, the sooner you can get past this. I think when you have a bad, you know, PR staff or, you know, they're constantly trying to protect the player and shield the player at the expense of the media. And what that ends up doing is creating a bigger deal. You know, I mean, you saw it with Houston. I mean, had they just squashed that issue with the free press reporter, had they just said to, you know, Stephanie Epstein with SI, you know, had they handled that in a good, honest, straightforward manner and immediately handled it instead of lying and denying, uh, it could have gone a lot better. So I think that there are some some teams that handle these situations a lot better than other teams. I think there's a lot of variance from club to club. And I think there's a lot more input from, you know, baseball operations and ownership groups than there ever was um, in terms of, you know, PR and the input there because we live in a, a very, you know, PC society, right? I mean, things can go viral very quickly. Everyone's worried about offending everyone else. You've got the Me Too movement. You know, you, you, you've got so many things and everyone's so scared to make the wrong move or make the wrong impression because of how quickly it can travel. And sometimes I think that's to the detriment because people are People are kind of afraid to do the job that they've been doing for years and years. I remember when I was covering baseball and the the Florida Marlins had a PR guy. He's not there anymore. And he just wanted to be buddies with the players. And I just think that's a toxic, toxic thing. You still see that every now and then? Yes. Yes, you do. And that, yeah, that's, that's never great either, right? Because then the players think that he's their friend and you need to get these guys after a game. But if the guy wants to be buddy, buddy with them, He's going to let that player hit three home runs 
go eat his dinner, go hang out with his family, go lift some weights. And then you've got reporters in the clubhouse for an hour and a half after the game, right? The players are angry. Why are these guys still here? Well, no one's standing in this sweaty clubhouse at midnight because they want to be. You know, you're doing it because this guy hit three home runs. He won the game and everyone who's got a game story has to has to wait for this guy. I mean, I'm probably already home tucked in now that I don't have game stories anymore. Um, But, you know, it's it's a bad dynamic, certainly, when they feel like they're just in there to kind of kind of be friends with everyone. And that's something that definitely still goes on. I remember my last year covering baseball. I was in um, I think it was the Nationals, actually. I was in their press box. And there was a young female reporter, and she was walking away. And one of the team announcers just says very out loud some completely and totally sexually inappropriate comment for everybody to hear. And guys are laughing. And and truth be told, in hindsight, I was just too much of a wuss to say what I was thinking, which is shut the fuck up. Do you still see that, hear that in the world of Major League Baseball, or has it become a more enlightened territory? No, you still see it and hear it. I don't think it's become more enlightened. I think it's become quieter. I think... Mm -hmm. You know, everyone, like I said, it's such a society of everyone's got their phones all the time. Something can get taped or overheard and recorded, tweeted out. Um, it still happens, but people are a little more careful about how they say it or when they say it. Um, certainly that culture is just not going away quickly, easily. Um, it's definitely something that still happens. It's something that I witnessed. It's something that still happens to me. So yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. Sometimes I feel like baseball is way behind the other sports, right? Um, I get people reach out to me all the time that kind of like, where are the females? Cause there's a lot of them in the NFL. Um, a lot of females that cover the NFL, a lot of, a lot of them in college sports, um, even in the NBA and the NHL. And then you come to baseball and whether it's a function of the schedule or the fact that it's still kind of that old boys club or what it, it is very, very sparse in comparison to any other major sport. Um, in terms of the, the the females that actually cover baseball on a day-to-day basis. Baseball is also a very strange place. NFL, pretty diverse. NBA, very diverse. With diversity comes, obviously, comes more open-mindedness and sort of acceptance. And baseball just still is a very, very white, conservative, all about the game and the bros and blah, blah, blah. Like, it's a hard nut to crack. And it doesn't actually seem like it's getting better in that regard. It actually seems like it's becoming more entrenched. Yes. Agreed. Um, I think, you know, certainly, uh, you know, on the face value of things, they try to make it seem like it's getting better. It's more diverse. It's more inclusive. There are still things that go on that if you had told me 10, 12 years ago, were still going on. I wouldn't have believed you because I would have thought that we would have moved forward as a society with some of this stuff. Right. Um, so, yes, I do think. Baseball- What's an example? Like, what do you mean? Your example, like the way females are kind of looked at, like for, you know, wearing what, whatever they want to wear. Or, um, you know, if they're, if a female is pretty, she can't possibly also do her job. There's always kind of that undercurrent of that as well. Um, you know, sideline reporters, um, still deal with those issues to some extent. Um, Twitter is an awful ugly place to be a female journalist. Um, you know, the, I find, that the, it's the players who are probably the most accommodating. They've actually dealt with a lot of females. It's still a lot of the front offices, you know, breaking through that old white, you know, boys club, getting them to actually treat you like a reporter and not like a diversity hire that was just put there simply because I'm female to even things out. You know, I, I still fight that. And this is my 12th year in Major League Baseball. So I don't think 
it's gotten better. I think, like you said, other leagues, you know, don't deal with that. It's much better. It's much easier. There's still that undercurrent of, okay, if I'm going to go meet a friend who's a scout um, and go sit at a bar with him, like, are people going to talk about, oh, what's Brittany doing with this guy? No one's ever going to say, Ken Rosenthal, what's he doing sitting here with this, you know, scout from the Reds? Um, but for me, it looks bad and people talk. And that's just kind of something that doesn't really go away no matter how old you get. I feel like it's something that that's persistent and that's there. And, and I've talked to the other female reporters who have been around baseball and that's something that doesn't, doesn't seem to change. You know, the, the, the coaches who try to hit on you or the, the, the weird messages that you get. That's something that, uh, as a 21, 22 year old reporter, I dealt with a lot. And as a 34 year old reporter, I still deal with. And I'm just wondering when that goes away, because that's a part of your job that, you know, you really shouldn't have to deal with. And I probably, I would say at least once or twice a week, I hear from another female reporter asking, how do I handle this Instagram direct message I just got from a guy? How do I handle this text message? I don't know if he's hitting on me, but it sounds like he might be, but I need him as a source. You know, these are tricky things to navigate that you don't learn in journalism school. You don't learn anywhere. Um, and you kind of have to navigate these minefields and you just kind of hope that it keeps, that it's going to get better. And like I said, I, I don't really think it has gotten any better at all. I think there've been times when I thought you see a woman reporter dressed and maybe her skirt seems kind of short or she seems kind of, once she does an interview, the way she sort of addresses a person strikes you as kind of ditzy or flirtatious or whatever. And the initial reaction is, God, why does she have to do that? Because it makes it harder for other women reporters. But then when you think about it, you're not going to judge me by the behavior of some idiot guy. Like, why are all women lumped in with the one crappy apple? Why should I be judging you by the standards of others? Like, right. Exactly. No, that's a great yeah. point. And it's totally true. It's, you know, and then people are like, oh, that sets us back. Well, why does that have to set us back? Because right. some some idiot in the scrum who pisses off a player isn't going to set back a, a Jason Stark. So why does, yeah, some girl who you know, isn't sure and maybe only gets better answers when she's flirty and doesn't really understand, you know, how she's portraying herself. Why does that have to set someone like me back, you know? And it's interesting because for people always ask, do you prefer Brit or Brittany? You know, because my Twitter handle is Brit. Well, I went with Brit because it sounded like a little bit more of a gender neutral name. And I felt like if I said Brit, it sounded a little more serious so that maybe if people read my byline, they weren't sure if I was female or not. You know, when I was, you know, introducing myself to people, it sounded a little bit better, a little bit less female than Brittany. And for years and years at Camden Yards, they don't have AC in that press box. I would wear like long sleeves and sweaters because I just didn't want to give off the wrong impression. And, you know, now I'm in my 30s and I really don't give a shit like what people think or if they think that me wearing a tank top means I'm less of a reporter because it's 100 degrees and 100% humidity. You know, you kind of go through that and it's like... All right. I would never judge you, Jeff, by what you wore. I wouldn't be like, oh, he's not a serious reporter. Right. Most of these guys dress like slobs. But for me, right. but for females is a totally different game. And it's 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 very frustrating. Also, and you just said something really interesting, which is this. A reporter is allowed to use every mechanism possible to get a good interview. You know, I can you can any you can break out anything you want. But the minute a female reporter seems even slightly flirty, whether she's trying to be or not. It's, oh my God, what the hell? This is ridiculous. This is blah, 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 blah. We do the same with African-American reporters. I've heard so many white reporters through the years say, 
oh, it's not fair. He has an advantage because blank. If he's interviewing, a, you know, an African-American athlete. I just think white guys suck. <laughs> and I am one of them. That's I do. Your new podcast title. <laughs> yeah. It's just frustrating. You know, I just think like we're, we're very judgmental. Um, and yet we have, you know, we white men in America have sort of dominated this profession as long as it's existed. Like you said, the, the whole, like, if you, you think you're flirting or not, like, it's my job to be nice to these players, right? It's my job to get to know these right. guys and ask for phone numbers. And so if I'm being friendly, like that, that's how you have, you know, you have to build that trust factor. But what's unfortunate is, you know, it gets misconstrued either by the player or by someone else, you know, and the night before I always tell this story because it's insane. The night before the Orioles first playoff game in 15 years, I'm in my hotel in Texas. They're playing them for the wild card in 2012. And it's my third year on the beat. I get a text from a guy who, you know, I was pretty close with a player saying he had news for me and, you know, he didn't want to say it over the phone. So I'm thinking there's like this big story and I'm all out in front of it. Someone's hurt or whatever, you know, it's the night before this game. So I go to the team hotel. I meet him. He wouldn't meet in the lobby. He didn't want people to see us. So I go up to his room and he doesn't have a story for me. He's got candles lit and he's trying to seduce me. Um, oh. and you know, how does that, does that ever happen to a male? Of course not. You know, as a reporter, you're chasing the lead. You're chasing the guy who's saying he has news for you. And if I had passed on it, what if it was an injury or was news? So, you know, and, and I remember being one totally floored because I had never ever given off that vibe and him just saying, well, you were nice to me. And I'm thinking it's my job to be nice to you. You know, I mean, these are the kind of things that you have to deal with that other reporters don't. You have to constantly wonder, am I doing my job? Am I trying to get news here? Or am I just sending off the wrong message? Are they taking this the wrong way? It was truly remarkable. Um, obviously, he didn't have any news, but what do you do in that scenario? That's something that, you know, they as 25, 26 years old, you're trying to get a scoop. You're trying to to kind of make a name for yourself. And and then you you deal with, you know, some guy in his hotel room playing Drake with the candles lit. Is that top five most awkward, uncomfortable moments of your life? Yes. Yeah. I would say that all top five have to do with baseball and weird interactions like that. I've been followed back to my hotel room by guys. Um, yeah, there's there. And, and listen, every female who's been in baseball has has stories that are like this. Some are worse than others, but certainly then you start to want, then you start to question how you do your job too. Like, is it me? Am I giving off this vibe? But if you're rude and you're not friendly, you become the, you become the reporter who's just a bitch. So it's just a very fine line that to navigate all of this. I have to ask, so you he invite you up and there's candles and you're like, Oh fuck. So how do you deal with that? Well, first off, I had to actually go inside the room because I immediately thought if I'm out here in the hallway talking to this guy, it looks terrible too. So at least in his room, no one else can see me in this room. So I did go inside and I was trying to figure out how this even went down. Like I said, I said to him, like, hey, uh, you know, Robert, like how on earth like did this come about? Like you're married. I know you're married. Your his kids names were tattooed on his back. Oh, boy. He told me he was married for tax purposes. I was like, this is going nowhere. So I, <laughs> I don't even know. I was so completely let down because in my mind on the walkover, I'm so proud of myself, Jeff. I'm like, oh, someone's got to be hurt. You know, he probably heard something. There's like this big story the night before the wild card game. Something's going down. This is great. Um, and then quickly, very quickly, this whole thing goes to shit. You're like, great. And then my next thought as I'm leaving is how the hell am I going to get out of this team hotel without anyone seeing me? 
So I took the stairs instead of the elevator down like 15 flights and just raced out of there. And it was, it was jarring, you know, it's, then you're like, oh my God, I have to see this guy the next day. I have to deal with this guy in the clubhouse. Is he going to tell other players? Are they all going to not talk to me? You know, is he going to lie and say something happened? Like you just don't really know how it's going to go. And again, that's something that you would never think about, right? If a guy texted you to meet at the team hotel, that would just never cross your mind. Wait, how did, how was it the next day? Was he apologetic? Did he acknowledge it? Was it, did it blow over? Um, he never apologized. Um, I don't think he probably believed he did anything wrong. He never apologized. I just ignored him for a while. The good thing, as you know, with the playoffs is that you don't have a whole lot of one-on-one access. So I was just very cognizant of if I went over to him, it was going to be with questions or preferably with another reporter. I didn't tell anybody else on the beat at the time because, again, the questions always become, well, what were you doing that made him think that, even if they don't say that? Um, so it did blow over after a little while, but it was awkward and it was terrible. And it's kind of the same thing when you get random messages from a guy and you just don't answer them. You just kind of have to pretend they didn't happen and kind of choose to be a professional and hope it, hope it doesn't ruin, you know, your, your relationships in there, which are everything. Also, the awkwardness is because I was just thinking, of course, you report it to the Orioles. And then I'm thinking, actually, no, maybe you don't because you report to the Orioles. Maybe they blame you. They call MLB or MLB.com. We don't need this kind of drama. And, you know, you're given a whatever quick payout and that's the end of your job. Like, it just seems like a, a lose, lose, no matter what. Yeah. No, I told no one. I didn't tell anyone because, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want people to be like, well, what were you doing that he thought that? Or how did, you know, like it was the night before the playoffs and it, I told no one to this day. I never told my bosses about any of that kind of stuff that happened because it just draws, just draws attention to you and not good attention at all. Like what good can really come of that? Right. What are they going to tell yeah. you? Like, Wear, wear less makeup, put on another sweater. Like, you know, what are they going to tell you um, at that juncture? So it's it's unfortunate and it's still happening because I hear from a lot of reporters, younger female reporters that kind of will ask me, hey, how do you handle this? What does this message look like to you? Because unfortunately, Jeff, I'm kind of an expert on, you know, messages that have some kind of innuendo in baseball. Unfortunately, maybe I should add that. Right below the tendonitis for Mike Pelfrey. I happen to be an expert <laughs> in, in, in baseball innuendo. You know, hopefully that player was not Mike Pelfrey because, you know, he was working on his tendonitis. <laughs> it was not. That was not. It was not Mike Pelfrey. It had nothing to do with Mike Pelfrey. Thank God. He was a very nice guy, Mike Pelfrey. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's excited for the holiday season. Merry Christmas, Casey. Merry Christmas, Father. So I know you've been making a list to leave old St. Nick. What's on it? First, I want to throw back Jim Kimmel number 58 Denver Gold jersey from 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Okay. Then I want a Houston Colts 45 jersey. Okay. And finally, I'll ask Santa for two Atlanta Flames hats, a Southern California Sun hat, and a Houston Gambler's hat. Yes, yeah, so none of that is happening. Why? Is 503-sports.com down? No, you're Jewish, sucker. No Christmas for you. Oy vey. You wrote one of the weirdest stories of late. I'd have to say this is, this is top 10 weirdest stories of the past month. For The Athletic, World Series or Powerlifting World? Inside one unbelievable month on the beat. This is the craziest, weirdest. No nutcraft. No actual reason for writing the story, which are always my favorite stories. Like, there's no... 
there's no there's no logic. No newspaper editor is going to be like, you know, we need a we need our nationals writer to do write a story about her her powerlifting experiences and how did this even come to be? Yeah, so I've always been I was an athlete in college and I I've always kind of been a competitive person. So um, I did CrossFit for a while and then I found weightlifting and um, when I got this job with the athletic, I told them about you know how my sister and I were going to try to qualify for this meet. It was the world championships in Ireland. And they were like, Oh, that sounds cool. You know, and the athletic, cause they like weird stories were like, maybe you guys should write about it. I'm like, all right, whatever. So I qualified for this meet, you know, a bunch of the Nats players knew about it. Mike Rizzo congratulates me. It was like June. And it, I knew all along it was the end of October. I also knew that the nationals choked every time they went to the playoffs. So I wasn't super worried about it. Well, obviously they didn't choke. <laughs> So, you know, I'm sitting up there like a ball of anxiety. I usually don't get emotionally invested in the score, but now I really needed them to lose. Um, so I rooted against them so hard the whole month of October, despite my, despite my rooting against them so hard, they continued to win. And then I had like a weird beat writer guilt decision to make, right? It was, um, the nationals are in the world series. Are you really going to be the beat writer who goes to Ireland? Cause you planned this trip and your bosses said it was okay. You know, it's, um, as you know, there's like this weird beat writer guilt that people kind of wear like a shield. Like I covered all six, 162 games. I haven't missed a, right. you know, I haven't missed one of these road trips in forever. I haven't, I haven't missed a blog post in, you know, three years. And it's like, okay, is that something we should be wearing as a badge of honor? Or is that something <laughs> right. that maybe shows that we have no life? You know, <laughs> I, I pick my nose every day for a month. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Jim. <laughs> exactly. It's like, I stay up till 4am looking at stats and writing my morning blogs. And it's like, shoot me like if that becomes me like seriously take me out back and end it it's over um so i was like no i'm going to this my bosses said i could i left mlb.com for a like a better work-life balance that was part of the reason i was the athletic and so i did i went to ireland i missed the first five games of the world series and then i came back for game six and seven in houston and obviously the way the world series went the nationals went up 2-0 uh, I was checking scores because they were playing at 3 a.m. in Ireland time. And I was like, oh, my God, they're going to win the World Series and I'm going to miss it. Um, they went up 2-0. Then they lost all three in D.C. And I was like, oh, fuck, they're going to lose the World Series. I'm going to go all the way back there and they're going to lose. But they ended up winning game seven. It was crazy. It was chaos. Um, I ended up doing terrible in my meet. And, of course, my editors, much to my dismay, remembered that we were going to write about it. And so, so I got to put my embarrassing failures on display in this crazy clusterfuck of a story as you, <laughs> as you, you, uh, so eloquently put it, but it was cool. It was, you kind of writing about yourself sucks, right? Um, it's awkward. It's embarrassing. Uh, my editors kept pushing me to make it more about myself when I really wanted to make it less about myself. But in the end, I have this story that I can kind of show, um, I guess show readers one, why I missed five games of the world series and two, kind of digs a little deeper into why I am the way I am. Um, I told my editors it felt like a free therapy session, which it did. I kind of realized like, this is why I push. This is why I left MLB.com. This is why I don't fear risks because of all this stuff that happened to me in my childhood. And because of the way I was raised, I'm, I'm a pusher. That's what I do. So I pushed and pushed and uh, nearly broke myself and came back from Ireland. <laughs> Is it weird writing a story that you don't want to write? It's awful. Um, I mean, I'm sure this has happened to you before. Right? Everyone gets assignments they don't really want to do and they write it. It's not your best work, but you do it, whatever. You check the box. But then when it's about you, you're, you really got to take ownership of it. 
And it took a lot of edits. And I was, I'm usually pretty like amenable. Eh, I guess I'm really not. I'm very protective of my stuff, right? You're going to, you're changing my words, my stories. Um, so I, I did have a difficult time when they kept saying like, we need more of you in here. Why did you do this? Why did you fail? Um, and, and it is difficult because I literally sat at my kitchen table and was like, all right, I just got to get this thing over with. And then just kind of came pouring out. It was probably one of the toughest stories I've ever written. I wrote about my dad's death a few years ago and that was tough. I locked myself in the bedroom and just knew I was going to cry all day on and off and did that. Um, and that was bad too. Um, so I think it's the personal stories, right? That really get you the things that you're emotionally invested in that are more than just, you know, throwing word vomit, just throwing things up on the screen. I mean, I've written stories I don't want to write all the time. This was different because this was about me and my life. This is what I love. This is, this is something that happens to all of us. I actually had this conversation years ago. I met with, there's a writer about Mirren Fader, Bleacher Report, and she was really mad over edits to a story, right? And I said, I said, once it gets out there, nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to be like, oh, they changed this paragraph. They're just going to enjoy your story. And the story comes out. She gets amazing feedback. And it's like, oh, this story was pretty good. And that's happened to me a million times. This story sucks. I hate this story. I don't want to do this story. Oh, you liked it? I guess maybe it was good. I could see our friend Brittany, like, oh, the story, it's killing me, blah, blah, blah. And there are like 75 comments on The Athletic, one after the other, praising your story. And I could just see in my head, it's, oh, well, maybe this was pretty good. Maybe it's better than I thought it was. <laughs> exactly. You're like, oh, this sucks. No one cares. I was like, God, no one. I was like telling my fiance, I'm like, the Nationals win the World Series. Like, who cares that I went to Ireland? Honestly, who cares that I went there? <laughs> Nearly embarrassed myself because I didn't train, like, because I crushed my body traveling all month like a crazy person. And I was like, who even cares? Like, can they just bury this? It's funny. I was at 20, 24 hour fitness yesterday. I ran into Joe Girardi, who's like a big lifter. He does CrossFit and stuff. And I was in New York in 09 and you know, all the years in the AL East, we kind of know each other. And he's like talking about my story. And I'm like, Whoa, wait a second here. People actually, no, this actually cool. resonated with people, you know, then you kind of get like, Oh, I'm glad I did it. Um, so I guess that's why we have editors, right? To push us out of our comfort zone to make things that are good better because that story was not that good. My first draft at all. It's not that good. My second draft, I really needed to be pushed and be told like, no, you need to dig. You need to get into this a little bit more. Uh, you need to make people care about this and care about you. I was probably not the best person to deal with because every, every edit on a story about yourself feels like a personal attack, you know? Yeah. Um, so it was, it was very different. It was different than changing a, a baseball story around. I just want to say, Brittany, first of all, I, uh, I think you're great. I love your writing. I love your writing style. Second of all, I love that you were named Baltimore Magazine's best reporter in 2014, and yet it's nowhere to be found on your LinkedIn page. However, I can learn on your LinkedIn page that you did cover Mike Pelfrey's uh, return from. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Thanks so much for doing this today. I really, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Jeff. And I don't know if anyone on this podcast knows or if you remember, but when I was a young Michigan State student, I reached out to you and several others, and you were terrific in responding to a nobody and helping a nobody and giving me some advice. So thank you as well. It's really full circle for me. I have yet to receive the check from that was promised. <laughs> it's in the mail. Just call me before you cash it so I can move money around. I want to thank today's guest, Brittany Giroli, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Brittany on Twitter at Britt underscore G-H-I-R-O-L-I. 
and read her work in The Athletic. One can listen to Two Riders Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by The Dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.